three passages this morning, starting with Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, and they'll be fairly short passages. Genesis 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Revelation 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself shall be among them. And finally, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Dear Father, we ask this morning that You would show us Your plan to make us useful, effective agents of Yours representatives of You in this world, that we would more clearly understand what we're supposed to be doing to prepare for the glorious return of our Savior and Master and the culmination of all things in Him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most humbling experiences that you get to have when you teach or preach regularly, uh, on the teach or preach the Bible regularly, is when you discover that you have misrepresented something in the Bible. And it's not fun when you realize that. It's very sobering. But it's also a great reminder that the, the source for every single one of us, me included, of all truth is God's revelation. It's not what any man says. It's what God has revealed. A couple of weeks ago, I said mostly for the sake of humor that the only part of God's original commission to man that we've done a good job fulfilling is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And if you check population counts in some major cities in the world, you would say that if the assignment was to fill the earth with human beings, we've done a really good job of it. But I no longer believe that that's what Genesis 1 is talking about. In the weeks, couple of weeks since I made that comment, I've looked more and more deeply at what the Bible says about God's original commission to man and at how that commission unfolds in the Scriptures themselves. And I've come to believe that 
God's command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is actually the most essential part of our commission as image bearers and agents of God even now. And that getting it right is all about understanding what it is that we're supposed to fill the earth with. You'll pardon the dangling preposition. When we started this series on what the Bible says about eternity, the new heavens and the new earth, I mentioned four essential design elements from that original intention of God. Place, image, agency, and relationship. We spent a couple of weeks looking at what God has to say about the glorious redeemed place to which He promises to return so that He can dwell there together with His redeemed people forever. We've also considered how foundational God's redemption of man's relationship with Him is to everything that He's doing by way of making things new. And everything that that He has planned for that place. The point of the place is the presence of the person. The point is relationship. Relationship is integral to all of these design elements. This morning we're going to consider God's plan to renew and restore God's original design for man's agency. The word agent simply means representative. It means someone who acts on behalf of someone else. We are here and we will be in eternity agents of the living God. Next week, Lord willing, we'll consider what the Bible more about what the Bible has to say about God's restoration of His image in man. And a lot of what was addressed in the worship this morning goes to that point. Now, if it sounds to you like talking about agency before image is getting the cart before the horse, bear with me. There is a method to my madness that I think in the next couple of weeks will make sense. For starters, what I want to do this morning is quickly revisit God's purpose for saving people in the first place. Why does God bother to save human beings? Or to put it another way, what did the death of Jesus Christ accomplish with regard to people? If you ask a believer that question, you'll probably get answers like, Jesus died so I can go to heaven. Or Jesus died so that I can have an abundant life. Or Jesus died to save sinners. Are those answers incorrect or unbiblical? No. They're good answers that derive from clear assertions in Scripture. But they're very incomplete and they are potentially misleading if they're not seen in light of God's fuller purpose for saving what would be otherwise condemned sinners. If you go one step further and you add another question, things get kind of interesting. If you say, why does Jesus, why did Jesus bother to save sinners? We grant that He died to save, to seek and save the lost. But why? For what purpose did He come and take on humanity as we saw in Philippians 2 and bear the penalty for our sins? Why bother? If you pose that question to people who know the Bible reasonably well, you'll mostly hear answers like these. 
Jesus redeems sinners to glorify Himself or to demonstrate His great love or to defeat Satan and to end the curse. And once again, those are perfectly sound biblical answers based on what the Bible has to say. But what is God's own explicit reason for saving sinners? I'm going to read four verses from Titus chapter 2. And as I do, I want you to listen carefully for the purpose statement. Why God says He saved men. Titus 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. The purpose statement is introduced by the word that. And when you see the word that or in order that anywhere in the Bible, look for, look carefully at what it's getting at because it's presenting a purpose or a reason. God lays out for us here a very clear, explicit declaration for why Jesus laid down His life for sinners. And the purpose was threefold. To make us His, to make us holy, and to make us useful. To make us His, a people for His own possession. To make us holy, to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify us. And to make us useful, a people zealous for good deeds. To put it just a little differently, and in the terms that we discussed in the first message of this series, He gave His life for us in order to restore His relationship with man, in order to restore His image in man, and in order to restore man's agency on His behalf to make us His, to make us holy, and to make us useful. Most of our gospel messages focus on the first two of those purposes and either ignore or diminish the third. How many times have you heard Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 quoted without Ephesians 2, 10? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10 goes on, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should enter into them. He saved us to make us His, to make us holy, and to make us useful. To make us effective agents of the living God. Those three purposes are inseparable. Now let's look at the at, at what God declares about His mission for man's agency. In other words, what is it that He's assigning to us to do on His behalf as His representatives in His creation? 
Genesis 1, of course, tells us that God's mission for men as His agents was to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and then subdue it and rule over it. Now, I think I have a reasonable understanding of of the second part of that commission, to subdue or rule over the earth as God's representatives. It essentially means that God has established a hierarchy. We answer to God and creation answers to us. God rules over His creation through man as His agents. It's pretty straightforward. As we've already discussed previously, if we had never sinned, we would not have known what it's like to be resisted by nature, by the place that God created for us to to live. But as it is, we experience a whole lot of resistance. Now, there's plenty that we could point out from Scripture about God's intention for us to subdue and rule over His creation. But it's the other part of man's agency that I think we most often misunderstand. And so I'm going to focus there. And what I'm talking about is God's command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. With what? Fill the earth with what? My answer has always been with people. Both before and after the fall. Because God reiterated the same command to Noah after the flood. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's why I said a few weeks ago that uh, that's the only part of God's design that we've done well with. Honestly, today I'm embarrassed to think that I coughed up such a perfunctory and shallow assessment of what I now believe is God's most fundamental uh, commission to mankind. In fact, the dominion part, the subduing and ruling over part, depends on the being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth part. Look at it this way. If the commission to fill the earth was simply a command to populate the earth with human beings, you're going to have a hard time explaining certain things in the Bible. For instance, God's words to Noah. In Genesis 6, before the flood, the chapter begins like this. It says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now if the assignment was just to fill the earth with human beings, you would think the rest of that chapter would be a big pat on the back from God to people, right? They're multiplying like rabbits. But the chapter goes on to say, verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. It was multiplied. Same word. Multiplied on the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with what? With violence. And God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Mankind was doing a great job of filling the earth with people. But that wasn't the point of the commission that God gave to Adam and Eve. 
God had given men dominion over the earth, so when evil, corrupt men began to fill the earth with themselves, the earth was becoming filled with evil and corruption. So God judged mankind and the whole earth. And He started over with the man whom He said walked with God. In Genesis 9, when Noah and his family came off the ark after the great flood, God blessed Noah and his sons and He said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. With what? Well, presumably not with another round of evil, corrupt human beings. Unfortunately, that's what happened. Recently, my brother Ron Manus brought a book to my attention that I want to bring to your attention. God Dwells Among Us. Subtitled, Expanding Eden to the Ends of the Earth. It's written by Greg Beal and Mitchell Kim. Greg Beal is an esteemed professor at Westminster Seminary. Mitchell Kim is a pastor who preached a series of sermons based on Beal's work on this topic And this book came out of that sermon series. If you want the really scholarly presentation, you can get this one. (laughs) It's the temple and the church's mission. And it's, it's kind of seminary level. It's, it's certainly got lots of great stuff in it, but I want to point those, point that book out to you. And I'm also going to mention a video series that Ron pointed out to me that I listened to. And it pretty much rocked my world. And uh, it made me think about things in a different way, especially this be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth command in a way that I hadn't thought of it before. That video series from the Gospel Coalition is about two hours total time, a little more than two hours in 10 and 12 minute segments. And you can listen to, listen to it kind of as you're able uh, or watch the series. It's a great synopsis of what's in this book although the book certainly gives better detail. I'm going to ask Ron to send out the the links to those videos body-wide so that you'll have that. And he has, I think, a few, at least a few copies of this book in the library. Now, I should tell you, my early impression of the content, of Dr. Beale's content, was a little skeptical. I felt like he was taking certain metaphors and motifs in the Bible a little too far, maybe being a little speculative. And I already knew I disagreed with his views on in the end times prior to eternity. But I got to tell you, after working through that video series, I was hooked and I was absolutely intrigued. And the book presents the case even more compellingly. I assure you, if you take the time to dig into this content, it will drive you back to God's Word. And it will make you think hard about powerful themes that go right to the heart of what our assignment is from God. Right here, right now, and into eternity. I've come to believe that the biblical answer to the question, fill the earth with what, is one of the most important answers we will ever discover from Scripture. In order to explain, I'm going to I have to talk just a couple of minutes about what the temple is in the Bible. Exodus 25.8 says, God said to Moses, let them construct a sanctuary for me 
that I may dwell among them. The earthly physical building, first a tabernacle which was a tent and later a temple which was a more permanent structure, was a representation of God dwelling in the midst of His people. Okay, That should be simple enough. It's very easy to establish from Scripture. It's all about God's presence with His people. Throughout the Bible, and by the way, when I, if I use the word tabernacle or the word temple, you can assume I'm talking about the exact same concept. Throughout the Bible, the true temple of God is the place in which God dwells. And central to God's intention for mankind from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is His intention to create a people for His own possession in His image who will be His inheritance, His people his treasured possession, and they will dwell with him together where he is. And where is he? In his temple, his dwelling place. The point of the temple is Emmanuel, God with us. In Revelation 21.3, go all the way to the last couple of chapters of the Bible, God says, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. If you go backward from the temple in Israel back to the very beginning, the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2 was the first earthly temple. It was the first place in which God dwelled in the midst of His people. He dwelled with them. He communed with them. And they enjoyed fellowship with Him and the worship of Him. The temple in Eden didn't need rooms. It didn't need a veil to separate men from the presence of God because there was no sin. There was no division between God and men before sin entered the picture. The new Jerusalem will be the final temple. And it will be more glorious even than Eden. And it too will not need rooms and veils. The Lamb of God will be its temple. In fact, the whole city will in effect be a temple of God. It will be the dwelling place of God in the midst of His people. As Adam and Eve carried out God's command in Eden to tend and care for the garden, they served as, in effect, the first priests. The first agents of God, created in God's image, caring for God's dwelling place on God's behalf. As the Levitical priests would later do symbolically in the structures called the tabernacle and the temple. But there was another aspect to Adam's and Eve's calling as priests and agents of God. See, they were not called to keep the blessing of of relationship, of dwelling together with God and of having dominion over His creation to themselves. They weren't supposed to keep it to themselves. God commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the whole earth. Now, if I were Adam, upon hearing that part of the commission, I would have thought, But God, why did you make this place so beautiful, so amazing? 
if you want our children to leave it and go all over the rest of the, of the earth, where are they going to find another place like this? This is where, <laughs> this is where Brother Beale really gets my attention. And this is where the subtitle for his book comes in, Expanding Eden to the Ends of the Earth. He points out passage after passage in both testaments of God's Word to support the assertion that God's intention for Adam and Eve and for their children after them was never for them to leave the garden. It was for them to expand the garden. It was for them to expand the dwelling place of God in the midst of His people until it filled the whole earth. His command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth is not only about extending His dominion through men over His creation. It's about expanding His dwelling place with men. And that is the most essential act of agency that we fulfill as redeemed human beings. Let me give you a little more ammunition for this. In the final chapter of the book of Isaiah, God says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares Yahweh. That's all temple imagery. The Israelites understood the Holy of Holies in the innermost room of the, of the physical temple to be the throne room of God. And they understood the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant to be the footstool of God. But in Isaiah 66, God says, all of creation is My temple and the whole earth is My footstool. Heaven and earth are not two realms in God's design. They're one realm inhabited by God and He intends to dwell there with His people. He intends to take over all of it for the sake of... All of it is to be His, his dwelling place. Now, with His people. God's command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is His commission to them to act as image bearers, His image bearers, His agents, to expand His dwelling place until it fills the whole earth. To spread out the intimate, personal knowledge of God to every corner of the earth. As I pondered this, my mind went to an amazing passage in Zechariah that we'd been looking at not too far back when we were, looking, when we were in that amazing prophetic book. Zechariah chapter 6 I call this God's mission for His perfect agent. Zechariah 6 is about a man named Joshua who was the high priest in the time of Zechariah. And it's in this passage, this is the second passage in which Joshua is presented as a foreshadowing of Messiah, of Jesus Christ. And in the passage... The Judahites are commanded to take silver and gold and make an ornate crown and place it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. 
to put a crown on a high priest. So now you've got a king and a priest in one person. Then say to him, thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is. And he will build the temple of Yahweh. He will branch out and build the temple of Yahweh. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. That's dominion. Thus he will be a priest on his throne. Priest and king. And he will reconcile the two offices into one. Priest and king. In that passage, by the way, the name Joshua, high priest, is the exact same Hebrew word for Yeshua, which is the Hebrew, the Hebrew version of the word Jesus. In that passage, it says that the, this high priest and king foreshadowing Messiah is named Branch because he will, he will spread out what? He will fill the earth with what? With the temple of Yahweh. He's going to build up and spread out God's temple. As the last Adam and the perfect man, as the perfect image bearer, as the perfect agent of God, as the perfect priest, Jesus Christ is going to fulfill the commission that God gave the first Adam in Genesis 1. The commission that Adam and his descendants, that includes us, have not done a very good job of fulfilling. Isaiah 11 is yet another passage that talks about the branch. It's talking about Messiah, foreshadowing Christ. The one who stems from the root of Jesse, who was the father of King David. And it's talking about, throughout that chapter, it's talking about this righteous branch who's coming and who's going to reign over the whole earth in perfect righteousness and justice. And it says... Verses 1 and 2, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And in verse 9 of that same chapter, it says that when Messiah does come again, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with what? The personal, intimate knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. The, the knowledge of God, the presence of God dwelling with His people will cover, the, will cover the whole earth when Messiah returns. When He comes back, God's commission to man, originally to Adam, to fill the earth, to make the whole earth the place of God's holy presence with holy men, not with evil, corrupt men as in Noah's day or since Noah's day, but men who know God and love God and rightly represent God and do things that honor God. When Jesus comes back, that commission is going to be perfectly fulfilled. That will be the completion of God's call to mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
But that very same commission is God's commission to us right now. It stands to reason that God's assignment for His perfect agent would somehow be connected with us who are the followers of the perfect agent. And it is the same commission. John 15, verse 16, Jesus said, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should stick, that it should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He may give you. The final words of the resurrected Christ to His disciples in the Gospel of Matthew are these. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Fill the earth with people who know Me. Who follow Me. Who are My disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The last words of Jesus before His ascension into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 to His disciples, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses. You'll bear fruit for Me. Where? both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Spread out. What happened when they didn't spread out? God spread them out. God repeatedly told His disciples to go. To spread out. To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. With what? With image bearers who were made holy by the perfect image bearer. As we'll see in a moment, Jesus commanded His disciples in effect to fill the earth with walking, talking temples of God. Just a few more verses in this regard about what happened after God, after Jesus gave this commission. And this is God's mission. We talked about God's mission for His perfect agent. This is God's mission for His present agents. That's us. Acts 6, verse 7, the Word of God kept on spreading. It's the same word. The number of disciples continued to increase greatly. That means to be multiplied. In Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. In other words, a great many of the priests were becoming priests. Acts 12.24, but the word of the Lord continued to grow. It continued to spread out and to be multiplied. It's the same two words. Acts 19.20, the word of the Lord was growing. It was spreading out mightily and it was prevailing. It was powerful. It was changing things. And what you have in these verses is the how. The way we act as God's agents to spread Eden to the ends of the earth, the way we fill the earth with image bearers of God who know God and love God and serve God is by spreading the Word of the Lord. 
And the Word of the Lord is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this is talking about. That's what the first church, the early church, was spreading. The Gospel. And when I put all that together, I have to conclude that the Great Commission was the first commission. It was the commission that God gave to the first man and the first woman, the first agents who ever lived, the first agents of God. It was the commission that God gave to the perfect agent, Jesus Christ. And it's the commission that God gives to us, His present agents. We're going to look next week at the issue of image and we're going to see how we obtain the ability to be effective agents of God. And it's all about image. And it's all about Christ. But a few more points today. One of the things that is so cool about the continuity of this commission all the way from the first temple in the garden to the last temple in the New Jerusalem is that our work here and now is eternal work. Every word spoken and every deed ever done by men on God's behalf to spread out the intimate personal knowledge of God to every corner of the earth is going to carry over into the last temple, the New Jerusalem. Every bit of it. Every word. Every deed that we do as the agents of God to spread out the knowledge of God is going to last forever. It may be that even in eternity, we will still bear the assignment from God to expand His temple. Not because there will still be lost people getting saved, but because redeemed men's knowledge of God will continue to, to grow. Do you think that we'll ever get a get our hands around God, that we'll ever get a full knowledge of God. We're going to spend the rest, Ephesians 2.7 says, we'll spend the rest of eternity discovering the surpassing riches of His kindness toward us in Christ. The purpose for which God saved us and put His Spirit within us, the purpose for which He took our hearts of stone and replaced them with hearts of flesh, inclined toward Him, was to create a people who know Him, and love Him and serve Him. A people for His own treasured possession, zealous for good deeds. He died to make us His inheritance forever. He died to make us useful to expand His presence on this earth until it's everywhere on this earth. Not, not by somehow turning a God-hating culture into a God-submitted culture. That's not going to happen until Jesus comes back and, he, and, and destroys this earth and everything associated with this culture. It's not going to happen until Jesus Christ returns and puts sin away from us. The way we work to expand His kingdom presence, His temple in the world is by acting as His instruments to pluck one soul of man at a time out of the domain of darkness and to usher that, that man or woman or child into the kingdom of light. Into the kingdom of His beloved Son. 
our appeal to lost men is to come and to join us as His redeemed people in His glorious dwelling place through faith in Jesus Christ and then to join us in expanding that dwelling place until it fills the earth. If you've been justified, if you've been declared righteous in the eyes of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then that mission is why you're still here. The one and only reason that you're still breathing air in this cursed world is to be God's agent to expand the knowledge of God. And if you're not engaged in that mission, you're wasting good air. Jesus didn't die to serve our purposes. He died so we would serve His purposes. And the icing on the cake, of course, is that when we do, that's when we discover what it's like to live lives that are purposeful and powerful and joyful and fulfilled. Now, one last little point. Very important point. God's primary agent right now. We've said we are His present agents, plural. Jesus lives in each individual man, woman, and child whom He has saved through faith in Him. He dwells within you, if you're a believer, He dwells within you in the person of the Holy Spirit. You are a walking, talking temple of God. But again, we need to be very, very clear about this next point. The primary agent of God in the world today is a people, not a person. I know I banged on that last, last time, but we cannot lose sight of this. I made a big deal before about the fact that God's promise to come and dwell with us applies to us both as individuals and corporately as the church, the body and household of Jesus Christ. It's God with us, not God with me, not just God with me. He didn't design the church to function as a bunch of individuals. If He did, He would have given each one of us all of the spiritual gifts and we'd be freestanding image bearers of Jesus Christ who don't have any real need for each other. That is emphatically not the way God designed His church. Read 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4. We already looked at God's purpose statement for saving human beings in Titus 2. I'm going to show it to you one more time. Titus 2, verse 14. Jesus gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. A people is what you call corporate singular. Many in one. His own possession. That's singular. And interestingly, the word zealous is a noun substituting for an adjective, and it's singular. Literally, a people for his own possession, a zealot for good, de- for good deeds. A zealot for good deeds. We're not just walking, talking temples of God. Together, we are the preeminent temple of God in the world today. In his book, What More Can God Say? Ray Stedman says that Jesus is still here. 
And he's still working in this world and he is still seeking and saving the lost and he is still building his kingdom and he's doing it through a people. He's doing it through us. Through his church. One household of God. Look at Ephesians 2. This, you guys know this passage. Paul is essentially addressing Gentiles who've been brought into the fold of God's people together with Jews. And he says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of what? God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into what? A holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Those are the same thing. A holy temple to the Lord, a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's what we're being built into. Where each of you is a brick. And we're being built into one building. One household of God, one building, one holy temple in the Lord, one dwelling of God in the Spirit. That is what we are as the church of Jesus Christ. This is where God dwells in the midst of men. Not this building. Not this building. This community. This people is where God dwells in the midst of men on the earth. And this is what we're supposed to be spreading out. This is what we're supposed to expand. This is why we're here. To fill the earth with what? To fill the earth with Emmanuel. God with us. In Eden, the beautiful garden was the temple, the dwelling place of God with men. In eternity, the new Jerusalem will be the temple, the everlasting dwelling place of God with men. Right now, we, together, are the dwelling place of God with men. He saved us so that we would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with this. One soul at a time. Until the day when He who redeemed us comes back to claim all of it. Every bit of it. Dear Father, I pray that we will be vigorously engaged as those zealous for good deeds, Lord. We will be vigorously engaged in spreading the knowledge of our great God and Savior across the face of this earth. You have done amazing things here in Richardson, Texas. You've kind of brought the earth to us. We have cultures from all over this world living in our midst. And we have an assignment from You as agents of the living God to spread this marvelous household, this community of saints by spreading the Word, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, make us fearless. We talked this morning. Steve pointed out there will be no cowards in Your kingdom. And as those who overcome by faith in Jesus Christ today, 
We pray, Lord, that You would make us fearless, courageous, bold to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ that others may be drawn in and that Your your marvelous kingdom will expand and spread. We look for that day, Lord, when we will will be redeemed agents, fully redeemed, when sin will be put away. Until then, we have a lot to do. Remind us daily, Lord, of why we're here. We ask this in Jesus' precious name.